probably the craziest is my uh, parents getting elected township auditor, uh, not only by six votes, but with six votes. So they uh, they would run write-ins and they end up winning uh, with just six votes. So it was unanimous then, right? It was very, well, usually, <laughs> if you could spell Roush, you could win. So. <laughs> You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. One of the hallmarks of our society is free elections in which we can go to the polling place to vote in privacy. Politics are ours for the deciding, and yet it is one of the most contentious of subjects. There's no better way to silence a social gathering by venturing into the weeds of politics, never mind social media where everyone can take the mic and say whatever they please. My guest today is Dr. Dave Rouse, the Teal Bivens Professor of Political Science at West Texas A&M University. Dave earned his BA degree in political science at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Probably helps explain his love of hockey, right? You, <laughs> you, you were among folks who do that nine months out of the year, I guess. <laughs> his MA and PhD degrees, both in political science, were in, at the University of Oklahoma. He joined the faculty here at WT in 1998. And since then, has appeared on local media eh, pretty much every time there's an important election going on. He's also a very familiar face around the College of Business because he has served many times as our outside member on promotion and tenure committees, enough times that he could almost earn an honorable faculty position right <laughs> in the COB. If anyone knows the ins and outs of the political process, it's Dr. Roush. Dave, tell us your backstory, how and why you got here, and most importantly, what motivated you to study political science? Well, uh, I am a native of Pennsylvania. I grew up in Western Berks County, uh, not too far from the city of Reading. Uh, and when it came time to look for colleges, I uh, chose the obvious one being from Pennsylvania. I went to the University of Alaska. Uh, and I, I have different stories. I tell people different stories for uh, why I did that. Probably the easiest uh, story for people to understand is uh, the Barron's Book of Colleges. You flip through and the first college is Alabama. And it's like, hmm, Pennsylvania to Alabama, that might be a bit of a stretch. And the next one was Alaska. And it's like, wow. And at the time, this is the mid 80s. Uh, yeah, mid-80s. I graduated from high school in 1985. Uh, the mid-1980s that uh, Alaska was listing as tuition is like $999 uh, because of all the oil money and stuff. Now, by the time I got there, it had gone up dramatically since then, but uh, uh, it, it was, it was. I had a nice scholarship the first two years. I had an academic scholarship. The second two years, I had a, a, a student services scholarship. So I was working in the student activities office and, and doing all that type of stuff. How I picked my major is still a little bit of a mystery to me. Uh, I've always been interested in social sciences. Uh, my dad is a retired high school history teacher. And so when I was looking at majors, you know, I could major in history. That's the you know, typical thing you do at a university, you major in history. But then I decided, you know, my dad is a history teacher. He probably majored in history. You know, I never actually asked him, uh, which I always thought was sort of weird. But uh, I uh, decided that, you know, there's a thing called political science. And I really wonder what that is. And and so I, I guess it deals with like politics and things. And growing up, my dad had run for the uh, Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. And I kind of thought every family in the fall, that's what they did. They had, you know, ran in a campaign or something. And and so I was used to what politics was. So I decided, yeah, I'll major in political science. So all four years, I was a, a political science major at the University of Alaska. And probably the uh, most interesting thing was after I, when I graduated, you know, my parents came up to Alaska for 
for graduation. And my dad says, now we have two uh, bachelor's degrees in political science. And I was like, ooh, I'd, <laughs> I'd want it to be different. So it never crossed my mind. You could teach history. And and he ends up, uh, by the time he, he retired, he was teaching more social studies, like sociology and psychology as well. But uh, that he could also have a degree. He went to school in the early 60s. So political science then made a lot of sense. Uh, well, then I, I, I really didn't have much. By the time I was a junior or so, you, of course, start thinking about, what do I do now? I'm going to graduate. So I applied, uh, I did the LSAT, like everybody does, in political science, and uh, didn't do so well on the LSAT. I was on the waiting list for like the University of Tennessee, and I don't know why I applied at Nova Southeastern. It just seemed kind of cool to, ooh, Alaska to Florida, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, So I didn't get into law schools, but I did also take the GRE because, again, that's what people do when you're a political science major. I applied at the University of Oklahoma because one of my professors at Alaska had gone to graduate school with one of the professors at the University of Oklahoma. And I, I right around the end of February or so, I get this letter, you know, oh, that's interesting. I've probably been rejected from University of Oklahoma. Well, it's like I opened it and I looked at it and it's like, well, that's not right. Uh, it said not only had I been accepted by the University of Oklahoma, I also had a fellowship in the Carl Albert Congressional Research and Studies Center. So as a graduate fellow, I didn't have to pay tuition. I didn't, you know, I got paid actually a stipend type of thing. So, uh, People always ask, how'd you end up at the University of Oklahoma? Well, I was like, they gave me the most money. <laughs> uh, and so I ended up uh, going there and and uh, earned a master's, an interesting way of earning a master's, but I also picked up a PhD. Uh, part of my program involved spending a year in Washington. Uh, I had done an internship uh, right after my graduation from Alaska. My fellowship then, I worked for a member of Congress for about a year. Uh, he was a brand new member of Congress, interesting guy. Uh, I really enjoyed working in Congress. It's probably the most frustrating job you could ever love because uh, you're, work you're working with other good people. You're helping other people in, in the United States. But sometimes you work on something for months and the member of Congress decides, hey, I don't want to do that anymore. Let's do this. And so it's like, great. All this work I put into this bill or idea, we might as well just put it in a file folder. So I have a lot of file folders in my office now that say things rejected by Bob because uh, I worked for Bob Inglis of South Carolina. But uh, how I ended up here then, I graduated from the, the well, actually I didn't. I was still working on my dissertation and I got a job teaching political science at Fairmont State College in West Virginia. So it's uh, not too far from Morgantown where West Virginia University is located. And that was kind of nice because my wife's parents, I had married by then, my wife's parents were living outside of DC and my parents lived in Pennsylvania. So we could do the, you know, Thanksgiving one house, Christmas, the other house, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Uh, but Mary grew up on the on the planes. Uh, her dad was in the Air Force. She was actually born in Amarillo. And uh, she didn't like West Virginia very much because of the trees, the hills. It was dark. Uh, it got dark early. It would rain. And so so she ended up applying for a job and landed a job at Texas Tech. And so I, I decided that, hmm, I probably should get a job in the general Texas Tech vicinity. And when you draw a big circle, canyons in the Texas Tech vicinity, not very close, but closer than West Virginia. So that's how we ended up here. Uh, and then eventually Mary got a job in the WT library as well. So we've been here since 1998. Uh, as I always like to say, irritating people with political science. Uh, how and when did you become the Teal Bivens professor? I mean, what's the significance of this? I remember Teal Bivens, but enough years have passed that I'm sure that it he might be fading into the rear view a little bit. Uh, he has a little. I know a lot of folks try to keep his uh, keep his memory alive. Of course, Bivens, the Bivens neighborhood is the Bivens family. Uh but uh, I became the Bivens professor in 2009, and I've been renewed a number. It's like every three years get renewed. Uh, there's this, actually a second professor then, too, uh, the Teal Bivens professor of 
of American politics. And I think Dr. Welch has that or holds that right now. But uh, as you mentioned, Teal Bivens was a state senator for a number of years. Uh, and then uh, George W. Bush appointed him ambassador to Sweden. Now, unfortunately, he wasn't able to serve very long as ambassador to Sweden because he got really sick. And then uh, when he became ambassador, there was a movement among his his family members, of which there are numerous family members and uh, friends to honor him somehow. And they decided to set up a, a professorship here at, at WT. And uh, so really it, it like the, I, I may have actually been one of the first professorships in our college. Uh, we didn't have very many at the university at all at that time, but we were one of the first in the, in the, what's now the Terry Rogers, Terry B. Rogers college of education and social sciences. And uh, so I was one of the, uh, one of the first professorships in that college. Uh, and be, uh, because of his uh, interest in politics and education, they decided to put it in that college. So it's it's uh, interesting. Uh, I I used that money that I received to travel to places. Like uh, recently, we went all the way to Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, to present a paper on Oklahoma. But we were looking at something that was happening in Texas as well. Uh, but we've been to France. Uh, when I say we, sometimes Mary comes along. Uh, the university doesn't pay for Mary. I pay for Mary. Or we all pay for Mary. But uh, I... Uh, presented a paper in France. We've gone to Canada a couple of times to present papers. Uh, so we've been different places, uh, Los Angeles, uh, next year's American political science meetings in Philadelphia, which is close to where I grew up. So I may end up going there and then, you know, not staying for the whole meeting and ducking out to drive to Berks County to, to visit the parentals. But, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so I, and I use it to, uh, learn new computerized statistical techniques and, and things like that. So I've, my big thing lately has been learning R, uh, the the program R. Unfortunately, my students have eh, some questionable thoughts about R, uh, none of which I can repeat. Uh, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but yeah, so I've been, I use it to try to Im improve my teaching as well as my research, which is what the, the goal of most of the professorships is. Well, you, you certainly have become the go-to guy in the Amarillo market whenever there's an election, whether it's national, state, or local going on. And they want you on there to pontificate. Tell us a little bit about your media appearances and and what are they looking for? Are they looking truly for a disinterested expert or someone to make predictions or well, maybe worse yet, someone to affirm what they might already think their viewers uh, believe? I, I think actually a little bit of all of those. Uh, I mean, it depends on the, the, the network, the, the station that I'm on. And sometimes it really depends on the age and youth of the uh, of the uh, new reporter. Cause sometimes they're brand new reporters. It's, it's always a lot of fun when they, they show me how to put the mic on and stuff. I was like, okay guys done this before. Uh, Oh, that's right. The station manager said you'd probably be a little grouchy, but, uh, <laughs> it's like grouchy. Uh, but it's, it's really, uh, I always try to stick to political science. So, you know, and, and, and they sometimes get a little frustrated with me that I'm not saying, you know, Dr. Roush thinks this It's like, no, no, Dr. Roush thoughts don't really matter here. It's what political science says. So uh, occasionally we have to do predictions. Uh, my favorite prediction in uh, 2004, yeah, 2004, when uh, Senator Kerry was running uh, against the incumbent, uh, President George W. Bush, and a lot of the media polls and an early exit voting, I don't know how they got some of that. The Drudge Report was a popular site and was saying, oh, it looks like Kennedy, uh, Kerry might actually be, be carrying this one off. He might end up. And so right about, I was in the studio and they asked, and this of course was live, so they couldn't you know, edited out or anything. And I said, well, you know, I think Bush is going to win. And he did. Uh, and that was, uh, that was, I hadn't studied any polling data or something. It was just like, eh, 
if I'm wrong, I'll never do this again. If I'm right, I may never do this again. <laughs> but uh, I uh, uh, and I it I sometimes view it as a lot lot of fun. It's it's interesting to see what sort of questions they ask. It's because uh, you get some reporters that are here they are brand new that went to like Northwestern, you know, the schools with all the big journalism schools and things, and they sometimes aren't as prepared uh, as they think they may be. Uh, had a reporter one time refer to the Texas Congress. And I winced the whole time. And you could see it on the screen, me just going, uh, because it's not the Texas Congress, it's the Texas legislature. Congress is a rookie mistake. And so at the end of it, I said, you know, you might want to edit out those bits where I look like I'm dying. Uh, (laughs) And they did. They were very nice about it. And I explained to her that, you know, Texas Congress is like taking your fingers on a blackboard and scraping it down. uh, Because I've spent many a year, if you want to be general, say parliament. But even Texas parliament is wrong. It's a Texas legislature. So they, but yeah, I, I try to stick to political science and I've been fairly effective because when I see people at McDonald's and stuff, they always, we always like when you're on Dr. Roush because you, you tell it like it is. And I was like, oh, well, that's good. <laughs> at least someone's watching. Well, uh, I guess in an ideal world, they could watch you and never really truly know who you voted for. Oh yeah. Oh, they almost, uh, my students get frustrated beyond belief because uh, they kind of expect hearing all the stuff about, you know, we indoctrinate students and. And things I can't even get them to read the syllabus. Uh, so how can I get them to read the other stuff? But uh, I, uh, uh, I think the only time I ever tell students how I vote is constitutional amendment elections, because and and I got criticized by some legal win voters for this, uh, members of legal win voters, that I always look at all the amendments, I study them thoroughly, and I vote no on all of them, uh, because just voting if you vote yes on one, that encourages the legislature to make more constitutional amendments, and uh, I've had a couple politicians look at me like, oh, you're probably right on that. <laughs> it's like, uh, so yeah, I, I try not to, uh, I try to stick straight to the, the political science and, and, uh, not fall into the little traps of, you know, this is a bad campaigner. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but it seems that we as a nation have become so polarized that elections more closely resemble a battlefield than a ballot box. The, the left has swung very, very far left and the right equally far the other direction. What's going on? Well, I mean, that, that that's quite true. We are becoming much more polarized. It's not new. Uh, I know if you look at the history of the United States and history of elections, you'll see a lot of polarization, for example, before the Civil War, uh, where you, you had to take a position on slavery. Uh, and that ended up shattering uh, the political parties at the time, uh, the Democrats in particular. Uh, but uh, our polarization, I think, started really, interestingly enough, in the 80s, maybe the early 90s, with the uh, growth of people like Newt Gingrich, uh, where there wasn't a whole lot of get along, you know, get along, to, you know, go along to get along type of things. It was, we're going to take this, you know, philosophical approach. And maybe the growth of the religious right uh, also have played a role uh, in terms of uh, not seeking compromise. You know, compromise means the, the world's going to end, the rapture will occur if we compromise. Uh, and, and the, you know, the, the millennial period will start or whatever. So I, uh, I, I think it's really, and in part, it's also negative campaigning. Uh, there is a fairly sizable, uh, political science always draws what looks like an upside down U, uh, big, almost a normal curve in, uh, when we look at voting that there's very few people all the way to the far right, very few people all the way to the far left. And, uh, but a lot of people, most of the Americans are in the middle, uh, and the, probably the biggest issue there is, as you're going to talk a little bit later in primary elections, but that's sort of a result of primaries uh, where the, it mobilizes the most extreme party members or party affiliates. 
and uh, the people in the middle wait for the general. And so by then you may only have one choice uh, and that becomes a bit of a problem. So I, I do think that uh, in some cases I, I claim it's negative campaigning is working too well. We've been uh, sort of uh, demonizing your opponent instead of, you know, how can we work together to solve problems? You know, you guys caused the problems. We're not going to work with you to solve them. And, uh, but it, that, one of my uh, more senior colleagues always likes to talk about air conditioning, that uh, air conditioning is probably what caused most of the polarization uh, because now uh, members of Congress can stay in Washington longer and and the legislature, the, the Congress meets longer so they can actually meet longer in the summer instead of going back to their districts and, and talking to people. But also uh, Newt Gingrich was one of the first members of Congress to go home every weekend. And so that, you know, when they were when members of Congress to stay in Washington, they'd set up card playing groups and they'd go out to dinner with each other. And so there'd be a lot more uh, conversations, chats, informal relations, uh, which we don't have today. We have a lot more, you know, we're here to do one thing, we're gonna get this job done. Uh, then we're gonna go home back to our families uh, for the weekend. So that's, uh, there's all sorts of issues. Uh, they're all compounding. I do think uh, it would be interesting to see if we get like a middle party uh, that stands for everything. Uh, but again, we don't have a system that's set up that way. It it also seems like what it means to be a Democrat or a Republican has changed quite a lot through the last 50 or 60 years. We We recently marked 60 years since the assassination of JFK, a president who by today's standards, would have been labeled a very centrist Democrat. Uh, in recent years, we've seen a Republican president embrace international trade sanctions that once would have been labeled more liberal than conservative. Um, and we hear of, you know, shades of gray on on both sides here. You know, I've heard of like California Republicans. What's that? I mean, yeah. either you are or you aren't, you know, yep. but, but they they still vote and they are characterized as such. And and I, growing up in Chicago, I heard similar terminology. Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, I always like to tell students that, uh, you know, Democrat in Texas is far different than a Democrat from New York. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law live in New York State. And uh, it's it's very clear that they are different. I mean, and, and definitely a California Democrat is different than a the one or two Texas Democrats you might find. But uh, it is interesting. That was uh, a joke there, wasn't it? A, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I, I did a little wink. You can't see that. But uh, the uh, with, with uh, JFK, JFK is an interesting character because he did try to push things like civil rights. But if you read some of, uh, not necessarily his writings. I mean, his writings, of course, are very kennedy uh, noblesse oblige type type things. But if you look at some of his advisors, they're like, I don't know if we push this too far, we might anger the Senator from Georgia. We know we need the Senator from Georgia to build up the seals or the special forces, the green berets and, and to fight our, you know, the growing containment problem in Southeast Asia. So we need, we need the conservatives in the South. So we can't push too hard. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading of uh, some of the works and some of the writings of Larry O'Brien and a lot of folks are probably going to sit there and think, Larry O'Brien, who is Larry O'Brien? Well, he was one of Senator Kennedy's, when Senator Kennedy was still Senator, uh, campaign advisors. Uh, and then he actually worked as a, a national uh, campaign chair for Senator Kennedy when he ran for president. Uh, most people might know him better as uh, he was the uh, the commissioner of the NBA in the in the 70s and, and 80s. Uh, actually the trophy is named after him. If you win the, you win the O'Brien trophy. Uh, but it, it's interesting. He's a, a main resident, uh, pretty much just a consultant and, and businessman, but he worked a lot with the Kennedys. Uh, and he has some stories about how 
you know, Kennedy's Catholic. And so we're all these, all these Catholic school leaders are coming to Kennedy saying, we need to have more money for Catholic schools. And, and Kennedy's going, yeah, but that might anger the teachers who aren't Catholic. And, and so uh, O'Brien has to fight this battle between, you know, we want to be more liberal, but we can't be liberal because there are a lot of conservatives that are Democrats. And, and uh, so it, it's really quite the, quite the time. I, I don't think Kennedy would have an easy time. In fact, uh, that's why he came to Texas. Uh, was because he noticed he might actually lose Texas in the uh, 64 election. Uh, there was a big lot of a lot of rubbing, rumblings among Texas Democrats. And so he came to Texas, he was going to, you know, even things out, you know, get get the, you know, lay the the groundwork for 1964 re-election and uh it cuz his re-election was not a sure thing in 1964. And so uh that's why he came to Dallas and and we all know how that ended uh very very sadly. But uh and then we of course got President Johnson, who did all those things. Uh, and it, interestingly enough, uh, Johnson appointed Larry O'Brien postmaster general. So he, he became, that was still a, com- a cabinet official uh, back in the, in the late sixties. And uh, if you remember Watergate, if I'm not mistaken, Larry O'Brien was the democratic national committee chair that was broken into for Watergate. Uh, when the Watergate burglars broke in, they were bugging Larry O'Brien essentially. So uh, Larry O'Brien's an interesting guy. Most people go directly when they do reading and stuff, look at Kennedy, but it's always kind of interesting to look at his advisors, some of the things they would have to do. Uh, and there's a series of books by all his advisors, uh, Schlesinger and, and even some of the McNamara's and, and those types, you know, the official cabinet and some of his uh, other staffers, but just some family friends wrote some interesting books. Let's step off to the side for a second, talk a little bit about that day in Dallas, November 22nd, 1963. Um, in your estimation, what did they do wrong in trying to stage this parade? I mean, in retrospect, in, in my mind, it seems like they they made a lot of big mistakes, things they would never do today, but maybe it took a tragedy to learn that in the process. I mean, you got an open motorcade. Right. I mean, I'll let you tell it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, I know the FBI went back and uh, Secret Service went back and re- revisited. I mean, they may actually revisit it every year or something for their training and and so forth. I'm not purview. Uh, I don't have any inside information on what the Secret Service does. But uh, it, it's interesting that uh, yeah, it was open motorcade. Uh, a lot of people lining the streets. Uh, you do have to wonder how much pre-planning there was. I mean, now they'll send an advance team down, you know, months in advance uh, to start. Okay, that could be a problem. Oh, that building might be a problem. Uh, so we'll put some snipers up there, or not necessarily snipers, but we'll seal off the building when the when the time comes. Uh, and that was, uh, it was probably too much of a closed in urban area, uh, for doing that kind of thing. But again, president Kennedy did, did best when he met with the people and you have to go where the people are. If you try to hold the people back, that's the balance. You have to protect the president while still making him accessible to the people. And, uh, that on that day, of course, he was a little too accessible to the people. Uh, I think the bigger issue is why was Lee Harvey Oswald killed, uh, that is the really the conspiratorial, uh, well, he did the shooting, so now we're going to kill him too, uh, type of thing. You know, we're, we're just cleaning up after our after our work here. You know, that's always the good communist conspiracy theory, and and the Cubans were involved. And uh, it's interesting for a Democrat, uh, President Kennedy was not popular among the Cubans, uh, or at least the Cuban communists, uh, because he was. Uh, interestingly enough, there's some thought he was linked to organized crime in the United States, and of course, the organized crime ran the casinos in Cuba. Uh, I, I keep, uh, 
trying to decide if it was, if I would have wanted to have been born in like 1960, I was born in 1967. So I, I was well past that. We were my first big political memory, of course, of Watergate, uh, sitting with my mom in the living room, complaining about why her soap opera was canceled for the Watergate hearings. Uh, but that's where I learned how hearings work. But, uh, uh, it was just one of those, uh, one of those things. My, my aunt always likes to talk about my aunt's 90, uh, likes to talk about where she was on the, you know, the day Kennedy was shot and, and that kind of thing. And, and st- every time I go to Washington, I'm supposed to send her something from Arlington where the, his grave is and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, uh, the, the Kennedy assassination had a lot of problems, uh, which I'm thinking are pretty well solved, uh, or at least addressed today with our current presidential protection. What are your thoughts on the role of social media and all of this? I mean, this is, this is a 21st century thing here. So it's well within the span of our careers yep. here. Um, this is probably the biggest difference between when we grew up and today. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, my family would always gather around and watch the news in the evening, you know, if we were eating dinner at the same time type of thing. And so of course, watching Walter Cronkite and, and the, and the news, but probably the, the issue with social media, the thing I always like to tell students is they need to read or watch all the president's men. Uh, because, you know, Woodward and Bernstein trying to uh, dig up all this information about Watergate, how to get all of this. If this was a podcast or if they were running a, a, a Facebook page or, or something else on social media, posting on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, I wonder how long you have to keep saying that X comma, formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> But uh, it's bad branding right now. <laughs> the, uh, the, the issue is that, you know, everything that Woodward and Bernstein did had to go through an editor. And so the editor would look to see now, we don't want to release that yet until we find out more. Go dig, ask some more people, uh, go get more information, go get more information, go get more information. And uh, I don't know if Wood, uh, Watergate would have had the same impact with social media as it does. I mean, it's kind of interesting to go back and let's lay, uh, social media over Watergate and see the, the, all the president's men by Twitter, uh, to see how that would have worked. Uh, I think the problem with politics today is social media, that it's largely decentralized, but it puts a lot of work uh, and a lot of effort on the consumer. Now, a lot of people say, well, I can pick what I want to watch. I can pick what I want to see, uh, or what I want to read on, on, you know, blogs and things. The problem is you read what you want to read. Uh, you don't read everything. Uh, and so I, I noticed that in the congressional office that I worked that we get these mailers from different agency or different organizations. And some of them were pretty liberal. Some were pretty conservative. Uh, then we get them. The, the receptionist would toss all the really liberal ones because I worked in a conservative office, but a really liberal ones. Like, well, no, no, let's take those out. Let's see what they're saying. So that, you know, if the congressman has to give a speech about something, he can say, now my opponents will say this. And he knows what his opponents will say because we read it out of their brochure. Uh, and I actually got a thumbs up. Uh, from the chief of staff for that. Uh, it's like, maybe we should be looking at, okay, Roush, that's your job. Uh, you track everybody else. So it's like, well, it's like we can, we now have the power to curate uh, a very, very selective echo chamber. Right. Yep. The echo chamber is a, a big problem. Uh, and we, we study that a little bit in political science to see how it affects elections and, and campaigns that, you know, now instead of just attracting media attention, you actually have to attract social media attention uh, talking to some, uh, back in 2020, when we elected a new member of Congress from our district, there were a number of candidates. There were a number of candidates. First of all, there were a lot of, did I want to say 13, 11 candidates, 13 candidates running for in the Republican primary. Well, a number of them ran solely on social media. Uh, they would have Facebook stuff and, 
Well, the problem is not everybody reads social media. And interestingly enough, most older voters don't read social media. Uh, and so how do you reach the older older voters? And it's becoming a bigger problem now because we don't have a newspaper. I mean, if you look at our newspapers now, uh, how much Amarillo news is in the Amarillo Globe News? Uh, that becomes a bit of a problem where, and not only that, but how do you get it? Uh, if you get it on the internet, you can select different things and it'll come through. Uh, I'm still a big uh, proponent of reading everything. Uh, but Dr. Rash, that's so hard. And there's some things I don't like and it makes me angry. And it's like, yes, write those down. Uh, write them down. How do you feel after you read that? You know, maybe clip it out or send a link to your member of Congress or something about that one that makes you angry. Uh, angry is a good feeling. Uh, now, uh, terror may not be a good feeling. Fear is probably not the appropriate feeling. Anger is a good feeling when you want to try to get a policy changed or something. So I, and social media is not, I mean, it has its pros and it has a lot of cons. I don't think we are fully aware of how the cons work. Uh, we're, we, we take the pros with pretty much without even thinking about it, but the cons, uh, we need to think about a little bit more. What, mm. what are we doing to ourselves, uh, in terms of echo chambers? And then there's the perceived and well, sometimes intentional partisanship of the news media. I mean, we've all seen those nice, uh, uh, graphs and so forth that try to plot all the different news outlets, you know, along conservative, liberal mm -hmm. spectrum and so forth. How, how does this happen? Well, I mean, first of all, most reporters, uh, just about all reporters have gone to college. Uh, and of course we always know that, you know, people who go to college are more liberal than people who don't. And that's actually been demonstrated, uh, through surveys and, and various types of focus groups and polling that, uh, if you take someone who's 25, who went to college, they're most likely have, if not necessarily liberal politically, at least have a wider view of the world than someone who didn't go to college who's 25. Uh, and, and so that, that becomes a, an issue and, and just about every, uh, you know, in terms of journalists, uh, you know, you get some conservative journalists and, and they're, they're kind of sometimes angry. It sounds a little bit, but, uh, it, it is one of those things where we found that, uh, particularly with incumbent presidents that the media treats an incumbent democratic president, uh, much more favorably than incumbent Republican president. And that's been demonstrated too, in terms of content analysis of, of news stories and things like that. But sometimes you have to ask yourself is maybe it's because the, uh, the, uh, Republican president isn't doing what the people want either. Uh, and so we, cause the people may not know what they want. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, politician statements always is, uh, you can lead, follow or get out of the way. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, people who think they're leading really need to get out of the way. Uh, and I don't know with the, with the media's bias, uh, that's an important thing that you need to learn as a media consumer. You need to learn how to identify that bias and then what to do with it once you've identified it. Uh, you can't just throw it out of hand and say, I'm not going to read that anymore because they're too liberal, or I'm not going to read that because they're too conservative. They may have some facts that you're not, you're not aware of, and they may have some insights that might be useful, uh, to compare other people to. Well, in retrospect, what Rupert Murdoch did, well, many years ago now, when he launched Fox News Network, uh, that was sheer genius because he filled a, a, a void on the right side of the spectrum. And, and he quickly built a following, validating his, his move. It, it, it's interesting because, you know, Rupert Murdoch, of course, you know, great pioneer uh, for the media. But uh, I do have some friends who always say, well, it makes voting easier. And, you know, whoever he seems to be supporting, we vote for the other person. Uh, and as I point out to them, what happens if you live in an area of the country where there is no other person? Uh, what do you do at that point? And so that becomes a bit of a, 
a bit of a challenge, uh, which we'll go to some later questions you have mm. about voter turnout. But it is it is interesting. Uh, the media has always been biased. Uh, for example, with advertising, you're you're not going to talk about that meat packing plant. This is classic uh, meat packing plant that has all these safety violations because they're the biggest advertiser in your newspaper. So if you run too many stories about them, even though you're doing the public service, that's going to be a problem. Uh, so there's always been bias on what stories to cover, what stories not to cover, how big to cover them, you know, big headline, little headline, bury it in the back, put it in the, in the front page. Uh, I remember when I was, the first time I was interviewed by a newspaper and I appeared on the front page, it wasn't positive. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so every now and then I, I look, and that's the hard part with uh, reading your newspaper online now is you can't tell where the fold is. Are you above the fold or below the fold? Right. And so I have a friend who always looks at the actual print and says, oh, you're below. Uh, so it's like, because uh, being above the fold, you don't want to be above the fold. Uh, but it's just, uh, it's just fascinating. Some of the, some of the complaints we make about the media, and then we don't really even consume it that much. So when, when this episode airs in uh, the middle of December, 2023, we will be less than 11 months away from a national election. And this is the hard part to believe only a month away from the first caucus and first primary it seems like we just did this. How do you see things heating up? I mean, is this going to be just as divisive as things were in 2020? There's a there's a fear among political scientists and and uh, Democratic experts, and this is small D Democratic uh, experts, people who want to advance democracy and not not uh, uh, retrench, is that this may actually be worse than 2020. Uh, now the issue, of course, of 2020 is it started out fine. Uh, and then we got COVID tossed in there and we had to do all sorts of things to adjust with COVID. And, and there's some that you know, had questionable constitutionality, uh, in terms of what they were doing and, and, you know, states were changing rules in the middle of the game. And, and if you might remember, we pushed back our runoff, uh, dramatically, uh, when it had usually the runoffs in May. So the primaries in March, the runoff is in May. And this, we pushed the runoff back to like June, I think, if I remember, but, uh, having the caucuses uh it's starting in january february uh you know we I, I always hope for like a big snowstorm so we have a snow day so i can just sit at home and read my computer all day and get out to snuff on what's what's going on i think the candidates are are looking forward to having it come and go because i was always that place where the really weak candidates just drop out uh a uh, the the stronger candidates then look to see oh i came in second but now i'm gonna win new hampshire uh and that kind of thing so we'll We'll see. It, it, I am concerned about uh, divisiveness and, and more trust in the election. Uh, I don't think anyone really trusts the primaries to start with, but uh, much less the candidates. But it's uh, the caucuses and, and the uh, primaries. Of course, Iowa had better get their caucus straight this year. You might remember the last couple of caucuses, they had some problems with recording information and their computer system was down and the guy who pressed the, the enter button wasn't pressing the right enter button uh, and that kind of thing. So Things weren't working as well as they should have. Uh, they might want to do like a practice run or something. <laughs> How good are the primaries at predicting a national election outcome? I mean, you know, these are just miniature voting scenarios. And you've got at the beginning of, of all this, you may have more than a dozen candidates in, in one party. That's that's a lot. Uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses of of this kind of a system? And what what purpose do they serve in the grand scheme? We have to look at presidential election history. So you start, of course, looking with the first president, George Washington, who was essentially elected, you know, by acclamation and, you know, we're going to vote for him. And the Electoral College, which was selected by the states, 
uh, different ways. Most of them selected by legislature. And uh, over time, uh, we started having congressional caucuses. So the Democrats would caucus and who we do, who do we want to nominate? And the Republicans would caucus by the time we had Democrats and Republicans, you know, we had Whigs and Democratic Republicans and Federalists and Anti-Federalists and all that. But uh, really, the primaries are actually fairly new. If you take a look at the history of primary elections, uh, among the first primaries were uh, when uh, President Kennedy ran. Uh, he ran in some of the first primaries. Uh, I do believe uh, Adelaide Stevenson uh, ran in, in maybe the first primary. Uh, and primaries for president are, are definitely different than primaries for like local offices or state offices. Uh, it, it, it does become a bit of a problem because now you have to have someone come in uh, each, they have to set up in each of the different congressional districts based on uh, how the state allocates its electoral votes. And, and every, the toughest thing to explain to a student is how the, the convention delegates are selected. You know, what's that based on? And it's like, okay, take a quarter, flip it, uh, now flip it 300 times. Uh, that's how many delegates you get. Uh, and it really, the both, both parties select, they have different ways. Uh, the Democrats are big on what they call the super delegates, uh, which I think the official term is party leaders and elected officials. So anybody who's like a governor, he or she's already a, a delegate. Uh, some of the big city mayors are delegates automatically. Uh, they don't have to be voted on. And those sometimes at the convention are the ones that you talk about, oh, well, it looks like Hillary has most of those locked up. So Bernie Sanders doesn't have as many uh, super delegates. Uh, and so, and it's also becomes a bit of a problem when the president, the different parties, the parties change their presidential nomination structure from one election to the next election. Uh, I always remember in 1972, of course, the, the Democrats had a rough convention. Uh, 1968 was rough, but 1972 was, they swung the wrong way. They went too far uh, with quotas. You have to have a certain number of uh, Spanish speaking black women. Uh, you know, they divide it. They cut it so fine that it became a bit of a challenge to try to get the convention to do anything. And so they, and from the seventies and the eighties to the nineties, the Democrats have been moving back. That's where they got the super delegate idea. But uh, in terms of predicting the general election, then it's really difficult because primaries mobilize the most active, the most interested, uh, and sometimes the most angry uh, party affiliates. Um, notice I never say party member because you're not really a member. You're, you, you affiliate with a party, you pick a team, uh, and it's sometimes tough as a team member, you know, you're, you're on a, on a team. Now, which one of these two candidates of the seven am I going to pick from? Uh, and so that becomes a bit of a, bit of a tra challenge. I know for voters, I actually worked, uh, as an election clerk in 2022 for the statewide office primaries and voters always have a tough time because they're not allowed to take their electronic devices into vote, uh, which I think is interesting. Everybody puts their stuff on notes in like iPhone or whatever, uh, you know, you can write it on a piece of paper and just take it along. Well, I don't know what this office does. So how am I going to decide what, who to vote for? And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, apparently you didn't take my class. So uh, that's uh, the general election is a lot easier for voters because they're, the teams are already selected. So you know, I'm a Democrat. He's a Democrat. I'm going to vote for him. Uh, you know, I'm a, de a Republican. She's a Republican. I'm going to vote for her. Uh, and and it, it becomes a lot easier. The party cues are much more clear. Uh, who you're voting for in a primary? Eh, it's hard to tell if you're voting, you know, I'm going to vote for the guy with the good hair, uh, that kind of thing. You know, this guy seems to be a little bit more foreign policy oriented and president. That's what I want. A foreign policy person. Uh, well, everyone else is voting for the domestic policy person, uh, and that kind of thing. So it, it becomes a bit, 
a bit of a challenge. Is is it possible that an otherwise viable candidate may deselect him or herself from the field simply because they didn't do too well in the first few primaries or caucuses? We've seen that over the last, uh, at least since the 2000 election, that uh, particularly if it's not an incumbent, that the probably the best candidate doesn't do as well in, in Iowa for whatever reason. They may be boring or uh, they were, they've been running since, you know, the last president was elected and people are tired of them. Uh, you can take the Jimmy Carter, uh, approach to campaigning a little too, too much where, you know, he, of course, he was governor from Georgia. Now who in Iowa is going to know the governor from Georgia? Well, he went out and introduced himself to everybody. Uh, he would actually drive to different functions and, uh, he would go to the Iowa state fair and look at the butter sculpture. Uh, I've always wanted to see the butter sculpture myself, but, uh, the uh, he he went to you know different events Iowa football games and you know different Democratic breakfasts and various types of function and just got to know people and people talked with other people. I don't know how much that works these days when we're all expecting you know glitzy campaign commercials and things. And in the primary, those become expensive. And sometimes the most viable candidate, the best candidate, doesn't have the cash. Uh, and so maybe we need to sit down as political scientists and come up with what does viability mean. Uh, because sometimes the best candidate isn't the most viable candidate. Sometimes the most viable candidate isn't, if you want to elect a statesman or a stateswoman, may not be the the most uh, fundraising, have the most fundraising ability. So it's uh, primaries. Again, primaries for local elections usually are pretty good. They're they're a little easier to understand for people. And we're going to have one uh, in, in this uh, legislative district. I've already started seeing signs. Uh, I'm probably the only person who stops and takes pictures of campaign signs, which causes problems along the interstate, but, uh, that, uh, uh, so we may have one and we'll have to figure out how to do a, a, uh, legislative primary here in, in Randall County. And that could cause some problems in Amarillo because nobody knows where they live in Amarillo. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there are the debates. Mm. While it seems on the surface that this is where a great orator could rise to the occasion anymore, it feels like the candidate is just parroting party lines, uh, to the point of being predictable, you know, one-liners, zingers, yep. pithy little statements that basically, well, I've, I've seen too many analyses of presidential wannabes and presidents and, and their speaking levels, like really hideously low right. intellectual levels. Oh, like, oh yeah. my, we're appealing to the, the <laughs> lowest among us here. What are your thoughts on all this? Well, the, the debates always make good fodder for Saturday Night Live, however. Oh, they uh, do, yeah. Uh, my strategy, I always remember that from that. <laughs> The uh, the first Bush camp, or not the first Bush, uh, well, I mean, President H. George H.W. Bush had his moments in, in terms of Dana Carvey imitating him and things. But yeah, the, the, the presidential debates, students like to talk about those. I don't. Uh, I'm not a big debate fan. Uh, I know a couple of times I've been invited by one of the TV stations to come and, and sit there with a group of students and the students talk about what they were looking for and I can talk about what I'm looking for and why we're all looking and I sometimes write those off as the most excruciatingly painful activities because I'm sitting there going, oh, I wouldn't have said that. Uh, apparently the notes were written wrong. <laughs> uh, he didn't, you know, memorize that card correctly. Well, message, I care. Uh, the George, the George W. Bush, H.W. Uh, Bush sl uh, slip when he said, you know, I'm going to talk about this. And then, and of course, your message, sir, is to say, I care. Uh, and he said, message, I care. Uh, and, uh, that and talking about how I was surprised when you take socks and run them across the scanner at a, at a store, they'll beep the price and things. Uh, he was impressed by that you could do that. Uh, 
I mean, the classic now is to ask a, uh, the reporter will ask the candidate, how much does a gallon of milk cost? Uh, does everyone know? Uh, I, by the way, go look every, <laughs> every election year to see exactly. And I do a plotted average of, okay, now if someone asked me how much a gallon of milk was, I could tell you. Uh, although I usually drink it in half gallons because I can't fit the gallon in the refrigerator. But the, uh, uh, the election debates, uh, I know when we're talking about British, uh, British debating, their, their debates are a lot more intellectual, uh, and they actually have turns of phrase that, you know, of course, we're all familiar with Winston Churchill and his debating uh, acumen, that uh, Americans don't have that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, is, it is pretty poor uh, in terms of, you know, witty statements, but, uh, you know, where's the beef? Our most, that, that's one of the famous political commercials, but that's a commercial, not a, a debate. Uh, but then, uh, let, uh, sir, let's say uh, your, your wife was raped. How would you respond? Uh, and that, that was uh, Michael Dukakis's famous, um, I don't know, stumble in his debate against uh, George H.W. Bush that uh, that became a bit of a, a campaign commercial as well. So yeah, it's the debates. I guess they get the people out there. The way they're done, uh, they always change it up every year. Who gets to be a part of it? The primary debates are almost... I would say nonsensical. I mean, it's, they've had some interesting moments there too, where, you know, I paid for this mic, uh, the Republicans in 1980, uh, where I believe it might actually have been George H.W. Bush who said I paid for this mic or Ronald Reagan paid for them. I can't remember who paid for the mic, but, uh, you're going to keep it on as long as I, I talk because I paid for this. Uh, so it, yeah, the debates, I'm not a debate fan. If you ask anyone from Europe or other areas, their thoughts on our election process, they, typically are most befuddled at our two-party system. Yeah, we've, we've got libertarian candidates and other, you know, uh, people you've never heard of, um, and, and sometimes even a potential serious independent candidate, like when Ross Perot challenged the status quo in 92. Well, that didn't end too well, obviously, and it wound up kind of splitting the conservative vote. Um, how do you explain why we have not embraced a three or more party system like in Germany and so many other parts of the world? Well, in Germany and all, we don't even have to look that far. Canada, uh, Canada has a, a multi-party system and actually a fairly strong three-party, four-party, uh, sometimes if you count the Bloc Quebecois, that uh, it becomes a bit of a problem for some of their uh, elections. You know, that for a number of years, uh, Great Britain was run by a coalition government. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we don't have that type of system. Uh, we of course use first, first past the post, uh, just as Britain does as well, but there's no reward for coming in third. Uh, there's no reward in the United States for coming in second. Uh, so why would you want to be a third party when you have no chance of getting anything, uh, in parliamentary systems, uh, particularly ones that use proportional representation, you can at least maybe have a seat in the cabinet. Uh, so there is an, is an attempt to get. Uh, you have some oh, incentive to run uh, and run a spirited campaign that you may actually become the the major party or the the leading party. Uh, it's not you can't call it a majority party because they don't have a majority government; they have a minority government. But you might be the coalition partner, and so you'll get half the cabinet seats, or two thirds or one third of the cabinet seats, or something. So that uh, that does become a, a, a probably a benefit for those uh, those countries. Because you can have, uh, you have a reward for coming in third. Uh, in fact, you're really rewarded for coming in third. And uh, but yeah, in, in Canada, as we've seen, the last several elections have been minority governments, and and that's not always good for. It's good for getting elected, 
but it's not good for governance because you have to keep that party, that coalition partner on your party, with your party. And sometimes that creates funny policies uh, that you have to go back and, and fix once you've dumped that that coalition partner. Let's take a look at local politics. Um, it's it's no secret, of course, that we're in one of the reddest part of parts of the country. I mean, even redder than red. The, the reddest county in the state is not far from us here over in Roberts County, uh, where Miami is, uh, well, pretty much the only town. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And the county seat and everything else. Uh, the margin of victory for Republican candidates there averages about 93%. Some might even joke it's a little higher than that. Yep. Um, there are, though, shades of red, not to mention the occasional Democrat. It seems, though, that elections here boil down to just how red you are. Just as in other urban parts of the state, I'll, you know, look at Dallas or San Antonio, Houston, Austin, there are shades of blue. How does this make your job as a political analyst challenging when there are such extremes and then the invariable shades in different areas? Well, the, the challenge is actually kind of the fun part. You get to do a lot of uh, different types of research and things. Uh, traditionally, what we've done is looked at urban versus rural. Uh, now, of course, the census, the census has a unique definition. Anything that is urban is what's not rural. Uh, and so that's clever. Uh, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Department of Agriculture actually has different breakdowns and they give them a, a they have a score, you know, you can be a one county or a two county or three based on, uh, do you have a metropolitan area next to you? Do you have one in your county? Uh, I've started using what's called population density. So I take a look at the, with the idea that uh, it's quite possible. And in, in, in like we were saying in Roberts County, everyone lives in Miami, but uh, the population density, of course, assumes everyone spread evenly across the county. But typically we find that that actually, uh, population density, it does a pretty good job of uh, helping explain some of the election outcomes. Uh, and one of the things that population density is very good at is showing change from census to census because uh, population density will decrease in some counties and increase in other counties. But uh, it also is a good job for sub suburbs. Uh, that's one of the the key voting elements these days is suburbs. You know, we know rural areas are going to largely vote Republican and and uh, uh, more conservative, and then urban areas are going to be more diverse, and so they'll vote more Democratic. It's those suburbs, uh, and then you get to start breaking things down in terms of new suburbs versus old suburbs. Uh, so uh, that type of thing comes in. Uh, it, it's challenging. It's it's very good. I mean, it's. I've seen folks uh, split hairs on football outcomes uh, that are even more, well, it was the red shoes. Uh, that's what made the biggest difference was the, he normally wears the blue shoes uh, and he tripped too many times in the red ones. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, in a sense, it actually makes it easier because you can always go, oh, that's a Republican county. That's a Republican county. That's a, hey, that one voted Democratic. Uh, but you were talking uh, about Roberts County. I looked it up in the 2022 election Four, uh, 444 voters out of 663 registered. Uh, so it's it's not the smallest county. Uh, Loving County is the smallest county. Uh, and even King County, which is actually in our congressional district, is pretty small. Uh, uh, it's, it's always uh, fun to compare that with our counties. Uh, Randall, by the way, had 48,019 out of 91,646. So we have many more people here. Uh, the... the uh, the Democratic vote, if you take a look at when uh, Beto O'Rourke ran against uh, the incumbent uh, Greg Abbott, uh, Potter voted more Democratic than than uh, Randall. And I know that has a lot of Republicans in Potter County in an uproar about, why are we letting them vote? Uh, 
that kind of thing. So uh, uh, letting them, I always like that too, the them category. Mm -hmm. But the uh, it's it's interesting that you know rural counties tend to be less diverse and of course more Republican. You mentioned the population density. That's one of my favorite variables when I'm analyzing data. Um, I've been doing some projects with a colleague here on uh, COVID, for example, and deaths and vaccination rates and mm-hmm. incidence of cases and so forth. And population density does play a big role. You look at a place like Dallas, the, the city has about 1.4 million population now, but geographically it's landlocked mm-hmm. by its suburbs. It's not like you can go out and annex more land. You can't add on to Dallas. It is what it is. Yep. And all they can do is build up which they are doing quite well. Uh, they probably pack 2 million people in there if they want to, maybe even more. But I, I wonder how that will continue to play out in in the politics of just that one city. It's very, very different from, say, a Plano or a Frisco, which, mm-hmm. you know, we can keep adding suburbs like that all the way to the Red River. Until you hit Prosper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I've always wanted to, really campaign in a city because it seems like you can stay in one building and hit, you know, a couple thousand voters uh, versus around here. You have to drive a couple miles to get to the next house. And uh, sometimes it's hard to reach voters. Do they, are they watching the local TV? Are they on satellite radio? What cable do they get? Uh, and so it, uh, urban areas are more expensive for media buys. Uh, and that's why you, sometimes we get uh, sort of funny Amarillo ads, even though we don't live in Amarillo uh, that because that's the way the the broadcasting works. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, the population density. I've been trying to get my students to look at the uh, COVID vaccination rates too, to see if there's a difference. Uh, and interestingly, I think we found, haven't we, have you found that Hispanic, largely Hispanic populations get vaccinated more than counties that have larger uh, non-Hispanic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that includes African-American. Uh, but yeah, the study of counties is very interesting because my students don't always think of counties. Counties, uh, for many younger people, is kind of an amorphous topic. Uh, They know they exist. They know they have to go there to get their marriage license, but they're not sure why would you study a county? Let's look at cities. Uh, And the problem with cities, of course, in in any type of research, is cities change over time. Counties, you know, their boundaries stay pretty pretty much in the entire United States. Occasionally, you'll hear about a county being uh, consolidated with the nearby city or something become a city county, uh, but very rarely. And the the, the interesting thing is you can take a look at their population growth and shrinkage over time and see now, how does that affect, you know, age of po- county? Well, counties that are shrinking are older. Uh, how does that affect voting? Well, counties that have older people tend to vote more, uh, but they also don't get as much campaign information. So that becomes a bit of a problem. So what trends afoot do you see happening in Texas as, as well as this general area out here in West Texas? Is the influx of people from other parts of the country, I know this is contentious, is it starting to change the political landscape? Are we seeing the Californication? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fun one because you see that every, I, I know early in the legislative session, every two years, and you don't California my Texas. Uh, and that's and in part, you can actually see that a lot with policy because the, the local governments are being re- constrained by the state government because the local governments, uh, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso, uh, the big, the bigger cities, even Lubbock to some extent, not as much. Uh, we'll see a lot of uh, in new people moving in. And I've always wondered uh, when I first moved here, uh, is it, which way does it work? Uh, how long, so you move from California and you've always been, you know, you're moving because you might find uh, similar political philosophies here or 
do you stay here and live here for a while and you become affected? You know, what's the cause? What's the effect? And so that I, I've always been trying to figure out how to study that. And, and there's some friends of mine who actually do that with uh, high school kids. Uh, they do some research on how do high school students gain their political ideology? Do they gain it more from their parents, more from the school and that kind of thing? And we're, we're trying to figure out if we can take that and try to study, you know, people who move from other states. It's um, almost like there should be an entrance exam, right? There should be, yeah. <laughs> Before you get your Texas You're driver's license. <laughs> yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself here. I mean, is it is it disaffected California Republicans who basically feel disenfranchised in their own state and they just want to get out of there? Or, or is it just people following their companies because so many companies have relocated? To- I, I think, again, it's a combination of both. Okay. Um, and there there's a, a number of stories I just actually saw beginning of November, maybe it was right around the time we were voting on the constitutional amendments, particularly the property tax one, where uh, folks move from California and they're kind of surprised to, wow, how much, we, how much house we can get for what we, what we had in California. And we don't have to pay as much property taxes. Now, of course, their neighbors are going to go, our property taxes are way, way too high. But the next door neighbors lived in Texas for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. They have no point of comparison. So uh, it, it's very interesting, uh, particularly now it's California. When I first moved here, in, in, it may have actually been similar with you, it was New York. Uh, there were a lot of New Yorkers moving, uh, and some of them were pretty shocked by what they what they got when they, they arrived and, and things. But And, and uh, no income tax. <laughs> and no income tax. Uh, I always liked that. I didn't like it. When I lived in Oklahoma, that uh, Oklahoma has an income tax, and I would always pay one more dollar to Oklahoma that I would get back from the federal government. So, you know, if I got 250 bucks back from the federal government, I would owe Oklahoma 251 Uh <laughs> Now, I was talking to a, a, several friends, and and that's been a problem in Oklahoma for many years. Uh, and they've been working on trying to fix it. Well, actually, my father-in-law talks about that a lot, too. But it's just uh, that moving from state to state, uh, a lot of folks find that interesting that people do that. Um, and not there's a certain person who moves. Uh, I know call centers. Uh, when call centers move, it sometimes is tough for those folks who work at the call center because, you know, all their kids go to local schools and their husband or wife works at another place and it's tough for them to move. But uh, call centers are one of those places that moves a lot. Uh, I've noticed that, you know, they'll close this one here, but open another one in, in Las Vegas or Henderson uh, because it's the property taxes are even cheaper there and uh, that type of thing. So it, it's the, the exit and, and voice uh, the loyalty sometimes isn't there. Uh, when you have it, because a political science term, exit voice and loyalty. When we come back, we'll take a look at polls and how statistics can <laughs> get us into trouble. Oh boy, can they. <laughs> the MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AACSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. 
For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. As we move ever closer to the next presidential election, we are going to be hearing more and more about whatever the latest poll results are. Dave, tell us how these polls are done and do they even really matter? Well, there, there's one word you can use for some of the polls. They're done poorly, uh, but uh, and it, and they matter. Uh, I know they matter to candidates uh, because you can see if you go into an, a campaign office and I've had the privilege of, of appearing in different campaign offices, sometimes unannounced, and sometimes it's fascinating. Uh, when I walk in and it's like, whoo, Dr. Rausch is here. <gasps> Dr. Rausch is here. Uh, <laughs> type of things. But yeah, it's a, uh, it, they, the, the polls run by the campaigns probably are better than the ones run by media. Uh, now, of course we have Gallup poll and, and, uh, those types of uh, agencies. Uh, some of them, uh, Ipsos is one, uh, Rasmussen is one I like to keep track of. Uh, Rasmussen has some relationship to ESPN and I'm trying to think, I can't remember if they're owned by the same person or they're funded largely by the same person, but, uh, so some of the more media polls tend to be a little bit different. The ones that I would probably pay more closer attention to are the ones that the campaign, uh, distributes, uh, the campaign will announce. And sometimes the campaign will announce, uh, largely to increase the turnout and sometimes to decrease the turnout of their opponent. So it's, it's a strategic a way of, of releasing the poll data. Uh, and then of course we have the university polls, the Marist poll and the Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac. I should, with my hockey, I should know how to say that, but, uh, I'm always uh, tripping over that. But, uh, you know, one of our former students actually worked, uh, for a long time with Huffington, uh, the Huffington poll. And, uh, she ran into some trouble, uh, as we're going to talk about in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, how the polls are done. Uh, most of them are still done the old fashioned random digit dialing, uh, which is a rather expensive way because you, for every number you call that you might get a person, you have three or four that might be the car dealer or the mechanic or the, the library or the city hall or something. Cause it's really what it sounds like. Random digit. You program in like eight Oh six and then you might program in. We're trying to do Western Amarillo. So those, well, what about cell phones? Uh, so you have to really, really, really do random digit dialing. Uh, so, and that's the most expensive form of, of polling. Well, I can see there being problems, a lot of non-response bias, right. because if if I get a call and it says it's my old buddy spam risk, yeah. I'm not answering. I don't care who it is. So you get you get a lot of Mr. Risk calls you a lot too. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> uh, now sometimes I'll pick it up because I think I know it'll it'll be a campaign. Sometimes it actually says like RNC or thing, a Republican National Committee. And you know, there are times when uh I I may not have as much integrity as I probably should, but uh when they say, this is going to take two or three minutes. If a pollster calls me, it takes longer than two or three minutes because while they're asking me the questions, I'm writing them down because I may need to use those later or something. Little did they know they <laughs> got a hold of Dr. Roush. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've done some polls, uh, polling. Uh, I've tried a couple of times with student groups to have phone calls and, and it's not the most pleasant thing to do. Uh, door-to-door vacuum sales, I would think probably is more fun then uh, does anyone do door-to-door vacuum sales anymore? Not anymore. Uh, encyclopedia <laughs> sales. Uh, that, you know, the, the polling sometimes is, it's challenging. Uh, a lot more of what we use is, I don't know, do you still use Mechanical Turk? Uh, 
and some of the the ones you get off of uh, Amazon and some of those that are set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Qualtrics has its own. Yes, they have their own panels. Uh, their own panels. The problem is their panel, if you try to narrow it down to 26 counties in the panhandle, that starts becoming pricey too. So uh, if you're doing the whole state of Texas, it's not a problem. But if you're just mm-hmm. doing the 26 counties in the panhandle or the congressional district or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it becomes a bit more challenging. So uh, uh, one of the things I've, I, I'd like to tell my students about are polls that are called SLOP. Uh, those are self-selected opinion polls. So uh, you have to find where the L is in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're listener opinion polls. Uh, that's where you get the, you know, might see it. I know uh, the local TV stations do that on Facebook every now and then. You know, what's your favorite breakfast cereal? Uh, and so- Convenient sample. <laughs> con- very convenient. Uh, sometimes very, very convenient. And you get the the people who are most interested, uh, the people who are actually on that media, that social media, Facebook or Twitter or X, formerly known as Twitter. And uh, so th- I, we just call them slop, uh, which is what they are. They're slop polls. Well, all too often I, I read social media comments, not just in election polls, but any kind of survey. People will say, well, they didn't ask me. And, and, and obviously they don't know the difference between a sample and a right. population. This is basic stats here, but they may still have a point to a point, of course, but because a lot depends on the sampling method. Dave, can you clue us in on how these things are done, how they should be done and how they shouldn't be done? Because even if you're just doing random dialing, you're still missing people. I don't know that there really is a perfect contact medium. There isn't. And and actually, uh, if you do a Google search or, or search on uh, on the Internet to try to find, you know, papers and articles, there's been whole books written. Uh, what they've been doing now is mostly multi-method sampling. Uh, where they do some random digit dialing, they do some uh, more, uh, it's not convenience per se, but it's more all the folks who drive a Ford. uh, And you can find that information uh, pretty easily. They collect that data. Uh, That's what, uh, was it Facebook was sued because of Cambridge, Uh, Cambridge Analytics. They were collecting all that information from people. Uh, But yeah, uh, really the way it should be done is you should pull a representative sample. Uh, and, and I know for a long time, was it the David Letterman show said that Tulsa was the most representative place in the United States, that the population of Tulsa most closely represented the whole United States. So if you wanted to, you could just talk to Tulsa, uh, to find out information. That's not the case anymore. I think for a while it moved to someplace in Iowa. I want to say Waterloo, Iowa, maybe was the most representative, but, uh, you always try, uh, and I tell students when we're doing, talking about sampling that you want to have the largest sample you can afford. Uh, so sometimes if you, someone else is paying for it, you can afford to talk to a thousand people. Uh, but sometimes you can only talk to 300, but you want to make sure that 300 looks like the population. So when you collect the data, you have to find out what's your sample, uh, take a look at your sample. What's the average age or median age? Uh, what's the income education? Do you have the proper number of men and women, uh, high school graduates, college graduates, uh, that type of thing. And so it really depends in some cases on what population you're interested in. Uh, and then how to get them. Uh, we spent a lot of time actually uh, when I took a class on uh, surveys and and research methods on on how to draw a sample. Uh, we would use the old Polk directory uh, when we we're doing a survey of Oklahoma City, for example. And we'd sit down and we'd throw a die, and that's where we start. And we take the you know we'd be on page ninety three. We take the for- first column, the fifteenth person. Then we roll it, and it would you know. And it was just, it was a, we, science, huh? Well, it was science. It's a lot of fun. A lot of my colleagues would say, I feel like I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons here. And it's like, <laughs> yes, but 
do you get graded for Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, so we well, were, in spite of pollsters' best efforts, they may still not get to the bottom of things. I mean, we don't have to look back too far. 2016, it looked like Hillary Rodham Clinton was headed to the White House. And as we all know, it did not turn out that way. Right. What went wrong back then? I mean, I remember watching the results come in that night as one by one, Trump started picking up swing states, unexpected states in some instances, and building a huge electoral college lead that was simply insurmountable. Well, I think that the element actually is in your question there is the swing states. Uh, polling is not very good with swing states. As an election gets closer, you know, of course, the polls are always within the margin of error. And so it's, uh, polls are really good at predicting an election that is going to be a blowout. Uh, it seems kind of counterfactual or, you know, kind of silly. Uh, we do a poll where we know who's going to win already. But uh, one of the challenges you have, there's really several different groups of voters. There are people who don't respond to polls. That's your non-response. Do they look different? Uh, and I always, I always find that fascinating when we talk to students and, and even other people, you know, my parents, for example. How do you, how do you study non-respondents? Because they don't respond. By definition, they're non-respond. Well, you kind of take the 100%, subtract the people you did talk to, and that's what percent is non-respond. So is that a lot of older people? Is that a lot of younger people? Then you have undecided voters. How long do they stay undecided? Uh, and sometimes you get voters who actually walk in and they're standing there looking at the the names on the on the ballot. And it's like, right then they decided. Uh, that didn't register in the poll because you did the poll two weeks ago or a week and a half ago or last Monday, uh, yesterday. And so uh, undecided voters are causing a lot of problems too. And then, you know, swing voters, of course. Uh, I always get asked when I'm doing a poll, what's your truthiness? index. And I was saying, truthiness. Well, I have all my teeth. Oh, truth, <laughs> not toothiness, truthiness. And so we, uh, we talk about, uh, do people actually lie on surveys? Uh, the classic is, is of course when David Duke, uh, the KKK, uh, wizard, uh, down in, in Louisiana, when he was running for the state Senate and running for governor, oh, he's only gonna get 20% of the vote. You know, would you tell a pollster who you're going to vote for? Uh, I'm going to vote for David Duke because you know, he's going to keep those blacks out of, out of my way. Uh, that kind of thing. And so uh, they, they did some research looking at that type of thing. And they found that uh, as we start getting more online surveys, online surveys are actually better uh, because you don't have to talk to a person. Uh, when you talk to a person, you're more likely to be guarded. Uh, and so you're going to, you might lie or, oh yeah, I, I like the incumbent. He's an excellent person. You go in and vote for the opponent because he's not as excellent as you said he was. Hmm. So that's, uh, polling is a, is an uh, fraught with, and notice I'm not a professional pollster. Uh, I, my risk, <laughs> my risk aversion sometimes kicks in and I actually avoid risk. So, <laughs> well, short of querying an entire population, which, you know, by definition is the decennial U.S. census. Right. Uh, are Allegedly. there better ways pollsters could be going about their business? Because I remember hearing after after Hillary Rodham Clinton lost that election that some of the polls had asked actually filtered potential respondents and they they wound up looking only at people they considered most likely to vote meaning right. they voted in the previous election is that is that a good indicator or not it, it it's a challenge because you know some elections are mobilizing elections uh, i actually have a colleague a graduate colleague who's working on a book looking at what he calls significant congressional elections and sometimes you have you know critical elections where more people voted than have ever voted before uh now sometimes it's because we have more population but uh, it, it's just there's some elections where there are people who have never voted before coming out to vote, 
And so if you ask the likely voter, well, they don't show up on the likely voter list. Uh, they're new voters. Maybe a candidate was good in mobilizing new people. Uh, we talked about the religious right, of course, in the, in the uh, 80s and 90s, how the religious right was able to get all sorts of people to sign up to vote who had never voted before. And well, they wouldn't show up on that type of poll. Uh, it, it, is, it is tough. And, and the, the trend now is toward more multi, multimedia, multi-method uh, way of sampling. Uh, so you'll do, you'll have some poll that's, uh, you may even use some non-probability sampling where uh, someone gets on a web page uh, and it, before you can get to the web page, you have to answer a survey. I know YouTube does that quite a bit. Uh, do you have time for a survey? And I'm sitting there going, yeah, I really don't. I want to get that video on how to find the normal curve uh, for my students. So I don't really want to take your, sur okay, I'll do it. Uh, and so I take it, which again, I do screenshots while I'm taking it. But the, uh, the famous instance of, of problematic polling and sampling is the 1936 Literary Digest when Alf Landon was going to beat Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And part of the problem was how they collected their sample. Uh, they, they used subscribers to Literary Digest. Uh, they had lists of car registration. Now, this is 1936. Everyone should have it in their mind. What was life like in 1936? Uh, they used phone lists. Did everyone have a telephone in 1936? And then uh, club membership lists. So various types of clubs, Rotary, JCs, uh, Lions. Lions Club was in existence. Uh, and it predicted that Alf Landon was going to win. And does anyone read the Literary Digest today? Uh, in large part because it, it went out of business shortly thereafter. Part of the problem was their sampling list was biased toward wealthy people because wealthy people could read magazines. Uh, poor people went to the library to read them. Uh, subscribers. So you had the subscribers. Car registration. So who had cars in 1936? This is the de depression. And uh, telephones. Uh, there are still communities where you had a telephone in the community and everyone would go to the telephone to talk talk on the telephone. So that's, uh, that's it. And then there's always the self-selection. Are you getting the people who are really interested and they may know more than the people who aren't as interested. Uh, polling is, is fraught. You ought to read each poll with a, a grain of salt. Uh, sometimes the whole shaker would be useful. Hmm. Are, are the questions these pollsters ask even relevant to the cause? I mean, I, I recently heard of, uh, of, of a poll taken by a major newspaper in the U.S. Uh, pitting – uh, Joe Biden against Donald Trump and and age was a factor. And mm -hmm. one of the questions they, they asked was, you know, if Biden's reelected by the time he would finish his second term, he'd be 86. Is that too old? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's too old. But then asked this, a similar question about Donald Trump, if if he were to uh, win and he would be 82 when he would be leaving his term in 2028. But that's but that's not too old, apparently. Yeah. But really, isn't the question, is a candidate in their 80s too old, regardless of whether you are red or blue? Right. And that that's a problem in the United States that we don't, when you run for office, it's a self, self-selection. You don't have to get like the party to approve you. Uh, whereas in Canada, let's take Canada, for example, since that's close to the United States, you actually have to be signed off or, you know, I want to run for the House of Commons, but you have to have your party your nomination form signed by the party. Uh, and so if they don't sign it, you can't run. Uh, and that might be where we need to start looking, maybe giving the party some more responsibility in, in selecting their candidates. Uh, right now, maybe we're a little too democratic in the primary. Maybe we need to be a little bit more caucus oriented where only certain people can participate. And uh, I know that's going to anger a lot of folks, but uh, 
it would help us with that older older candidate. It's tough to run against. Uh, if I ever running a campaign, let's say I were a 40 year old running against Joe Biden, don't vote for him because he's old. Well, what other reasons? Nope, don't, don't, no other reason. He's just old. Uh, and you know, the problem is old people vote. Uh, and if you start talking too much about how old people are a senile and you know, they fall down a lot, which they do. Uh, I mean, young people fall down. I fall down all the time. Uh, I've never fallen up actually, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the issue is, uh, you can't really run against those, those folks. I mean, we, we had that amendment, uh, this year where we're trying to raise the mandatory retirement age of judges. And it was determined that maybe 75 wasn't old enough. Let's push it up to 79. How do you, first of all, how do you run against a judge? And then how do you run against an old judge? Uh, you can't come in there, you know, all guns blaring saying, don't vote for the old guy. Uh, you have to be more subtle. And that takes some, oh, I don't know, some finesse that many campaigners don't have. Uh, and probably don't need to have, uh, but yeah, it's uh, the way they split some of those polls, break them down in terms of the questions. You know, what's too old? Uh, you know, I don't like should bald people run uh, that type of thing. And uh, it you know, polling again is like I said, fraught with with difficulties. And it, it's a sort of a little. There's the industry of doing the polling, but there's a whole separate industry of analyzing who did the polling uh, and how they did it and what they came up with. And so typically, it's like two or three. Uh, political science meetings, you know, the APSA, American Political Science Association meetings. After that, we have maybe dozens of papers that talk about, you know, what did they do wrong here? What did they do wrong here? And then, you know, we, it calms down for a little bit. Then we have another presidential election. What did they do wrong here? Uh, and we still have some folks out there who actually try to predict, you know, they they feed in uh, various types of demographic data, economic data, uh, who won the World Series, uh, and that kind of, well, although soon <laughs> the World Series will occur after the presidential election. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, yeah, the the polls can get a little too specific, I guess would be the appropriate term, and uh, may not have as much useful information as we might think. And for the candidates, it might be great. Mm -hmm. uh, do you own, is there a gun in your house? Oh, we're going to advertise on the Fish and Game Network. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that on cable, uh, that you sometimes see some commercials that you don't see on regular non-cable-esque type is there non-cable tv anywhere streaming uh, <laughs> streaming but i mean even on streaming you can see ads sometimes that are specific uh brand new voters might be more likely to have seen nickelodeon or something and so they can have a nickelodeon endorsed candidate i noticed that uh, at least with the obama administration uh, uh, mrs obama would appear on disney channel which i always thought was sort of interesting as you know the disney channel typically their demographic doesn't vote uh but then my uh, my wife informed you know reinforced with me you know they have parents and maybe their babysitter who's a college student does vote and and that oh <laughs> <laughs> well I I did laugh at that particular poll because really what it boiled down to was old and less old and the difference between the two may just be splitting hairs oh really. yeah very very much I mean I remember when I was a little kid thinking Ronald Reagan was old uh, and I had a professor one time who said. Uh, we were looking at, uh, this is in, you know, I, I went to college from uh, 85 to 89 and uh, she was pointing out how Ronald Reagan didn't age as president. Uh, that's because he was old already. So, <laughs> <laughs> and Grecian <t> formula. <laughs> typically presidents age as they, you know, if you look at pictures of, of Bill Clinton from when he was first elected till he left office in 2020 or 20, 2001, uh, he, he looked a lot more haggard by the time he, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Jimmy Carter even, uh, I don't know, uh, something about, uh, Lyndon Johnson, he just looked the same anyway. He's got that little floppy ear thing, but, uh, uh, it was just one of those, of course we all know, uh, 
President Kennedy will always be frozen in time, so he'll always mm. look the same. But but yes, president says they they served George uh, W. Bush looked a lot older um, by the time he left office, and now he, I don't know, he seems to bounce back a little bit. Some of the things you see. Lastly, do you think the polls have any influence on voters who may not have yet make, made up their mind? And for that matter, might the polls discourage someone who has chosen to support an underdog, one not faring well in the polls, to basically not vote? I, I think that uh, the polls do have sort of an, an maybe a negative campaigning type uh, aspect that if you look at the uh you know, that you don't want to release too many polls to say, hey, you're ahead. Hey, you're ahead. Uh, that's maybe one of the problems with the Hillary Clinton campaign was they had too many polls that said they're ahead. Uh, but they also weren't they, you know, they weren't picking up on undecideds and and very swing voters and and uh, people like that. So the non-response bias. But yeah, polling can have that effect of, well, why do I have to vote? He's going to win anyway. Uh, and so that that becomes that's where the strategic use of polling you sort of issue that one that says, well, now these three polls say that I'm ahead by this much, but that, that Texas tech poll might, eh, that one might be, uh, or the, you know, the Marist poll says, you know, the Quinnipiac, I'm going to learn how to say that one of these days, uh, that, uh, shows that we're only ahead by like two points. Maybe we need to mobilize, you get your voters out there to, to vote. So yeah, it can have a, a detrimental effect on a campaign as well. When we come back, we'll take a look at why, in spite of our freedoms to vote, we're just not heading to the polls as much as you might think. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. The 2020 presidential election had the highest voter turnout of the 21st century, 66.8%. And while some folks were high-fiving and dancing in the streets over this, it still means that one-third of Americans eligible to vote did not do so. To me, that seems surprisingly, alarmingly high, uh, an incipient apathy that me foretells a grim future. Why don't people get out to vote? I mean, it's not that hard. And with early voting, mail-in voting, all that hasn't been easier. Well, I mean, and, and again, it actually appears easy to us. But if you're one of those people who doesn't have a driver's license uh, or any type of state-issued ID, uh, now you have to get a state-issued ID. Most states now have, uh, you have to show a picture ID to vote. And so most people rely on the the driver's license. You can't actually say driver's license when you're requesting them, but uh, it is it is interesting that uh, while it's it's never been easier to vote, we actually have lower voter turnout. Uh, and in part, it's because over the the centuries, decades, we've been increasing the pool of voters, the potential voters. So there's always a, a difference between voter eligible and voter voting aged voters. Uh, and so how do we get the voting aged voters to become voting eligible? Uh, we're a highly mobile society in the United States. So you may move from state to state. And now in Massachusetts, they did it this way, but in Connecticut, they do it this way. 
Uh, how do you register? Where can you register? Uh, that type of thing. I spend, uh, particularly on presidential election, usually around here, gubernatorial election years, so the off-year elections, the midterm, uh, I will spend a significant amount of time in my classes sending out information saying, you know, here's the Secretary of State's webpage for Texas. Now, if you don't live in Texas, let me know what state and I'll help you find how you register. Uh, if you're not registered, how do you uh, vote by mail? Because uh, usually absentee, even if you're not of a certain age, you can still vote absentee. Uh, my first two elections that I voted in, I voted absentee uh, because I was going to be out of town for election day. Uh, early voting. Sometimes early voting still has a lot of lines though. And if you're a person who works, you know, seven to seven, you drive, have to come back to the, your home county, you might live at work in the big city. You still may not have time. And, and now I have to stand in line and they're not open on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, and that kind of thing. So I think we're, we're blessed here in, in Randall County that we have, uh, in many cases, Saturday voting and Sunday voting. Uh, we have early voting. Uh, we talk about having, uh, polling places on college campuses, we don't, uh, but we don't need one because we have one right across the street uh, to go to the Justice Center. Uh, and so, uh, but it, it, in some cases, that that was a bit of a change for many voters uh, when we switched from precinct level, where you'd have to go to a specific precinct based on where you live, uh, to now the voting centers. Uh, and so vote centers, I like vote centers. Uh, I know some people who don't. They want to go back to the good old precinct. But uh, we have so many precincts that it become almost outrageously expensive which is why some cities have big lines, long lines, because they can only have one polling place. They probably should have five or six or seven and maybe have, instead of, you know, 40 machines, they should have, you know, 150 machines for people to vote on, but they can't afford it. Uh, and we don't spend a whole lot on elections. Uh, we, we sort of see it as this is the most important thing we do, but let's, let's do it for as little as possible. Uh, the, the midterm elections of 2022, uh, which was, Last just last year, also showed some interesting results in that Gen Z, those born 97 or later, had the highest midterm election participation rate in many years, surpassing that of the millennials, Gen X and baby boomers. Now, admittedly, the way the, the numbers are playing out here, those Gen Zers are only roughly between 18 and 24. So they're they're college age, basically. Right. Uh, but still, they they came out to the polls. What do you think caused this? Well, I think definitely the all the issues we had in 2020 with uh, the various protests and riots and, you know, uh, the cases involving uh, was it George Floyd in Minneapolis and the riots that occurred there. And, and just uh, in some cases, the increased attention that, that high school teachers made uh, about those types of things uh, that uh, definitely it, it turned out a social justice would probably be the the term you want to use that there are a lot more social justice voters in 2022. Uh, Texas turnout, by the way, was only like 45.7%, whereas in 2018, it was 52%. So uh, we actually did better in 2018, but in part that was because of uh, uh, there were a lot more competitive congressional races in 2018. Uh, There's a lot more focus on let's take Congress so that we don't have to, you know, we can check president who at the time was president Trump, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, and so uh, that that type of thing, uh, it is a question of how we can mobilize that. Uh, there's actually a presidential candidate uh, in the Republicans who's been advocating raising the voting age to 25 because there's some 18 to 24-year-olds, the key claims, that are voting, but they don't know who they're voting for, how they're voting, what they're voting for. Uh, they just hear this guy who says, free college. Uh, so they're going to, let's vote for him uh, or her. And so uh, that becomes a bit... So he wants to raise the voting age to 25 unless the student, the person has taken a 
class on citizenship or serves in the military. Uh, so, you know, of course you can see where his, his idea is that, you know, folks who serve in the military at the time they're serving tend to be more conservative. And when they get out, sometimes they're a lot less conservative than you might think, uh, particularly if they didn't have a good time in the military. So it's, uh, it is, it is interesting that the, the, the Gen Zers, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of a loose cannon in terms of voting. Well, in spite of the fact that they came out in larger percentages than their predecessor generations, here's, here's the grim reality. It was still only 28.4% of yep. them. That's not much. It's hardly anything to write home about. How do you explain things in this light that suddenly 28.4% looks good compared to their generational predecessors? I uh, always tell my wife that one of the things I like to talk to students about is how to vote. And now she says, oh, you don't say it that way, do you? Because, you know, you know, indoctrination, am I telling them how to? No, I'm telling them the physical part. Okay, you got to register first. And when the United States, we don't have, you know, people think you vote, you register to vote when you get your driver's license. No, you have the opportunity to fill out a form that you have to send in that they give you when you register to vote uh, or register, uh, get your driver's license. So that... Uh, so when you turn 18, it's not like an automatic thing and you just go poof, now you're a registered voter. You actually, ha you yourself have to take some sort of step to, to do that. And in some places, it's not easy. Uh, uh, in Texas, it's interesting. I think all principals are officially voter registrars, uh, high school principals. And so they could actually register students at their high school. Uh, I don't know how many principals know that or do that. Uh, I'm a deputy voter registrar, so I will... I will occasionally sit out there with the legal and voters. I try to sit at a different table because they always ask me so many hard questions while we're sitting there, but uh, trying to get people to register to vote. So in the United States, we have to register. And that, and then, like I said, if you move to a different place, you have to re-register. It's not an automatic thing. Uh, in some countries, you just uh, check in at the local police station, and now your voter registrations move to that new precinct or that new voting surgery area, that new uh, voting writing or whatever they call it. And so it's, it, the United States doesn't make it easy to register to vote. And you have to remember, you have to do it in many cases, 30, 40, sometimes 60 days ahead of the actual election. So you may not be keyed in until a week or so before. It's like, oh no, I can't register. Well, then the, the data turn even more grim. Of the Gen Zers, it was the whites who carried the day, especially compared to Latinos, Blacks, and American Asians and Pacific Islanders. It was significantly higher for whites. Why this difference? I mean, is there a feeling among the, the other ethnic groups that their votes don't count? Uh, or, or are there other reasons? I, I think the one about their votes don't count uh, is an important one. Uh, and it might be more socioeconomic status than it is race. Uh, so if you're of a certain socioeconomic status, uh, I know a survey, and I'm, I'm going to get some of these numbers wrong, that if a, a child grew up with a set of encyclopedias in their home, they're more likely to vote when they turn 18. Uh, and so now who can afford their own set of encyclopedias in their home? Uh, my family had, because my dad's a teacher, a retired teacher, that we had a set of encyclopedias. So of course I would register to vote. That you got from a door-to-door -door salesman. We did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my mom wasn't terribly happy about that because I sat there and started plugging for it. But uh, uh, it was just... Uh, that that's one of the big differences, but also sort of the attachment. Uh, I had a colleague in, in when I taught in West Virginia that would always say, if voting was so important, they would have taken it away from us by now. And I, I reflect on that uh, fairly regularly. I reflect on a couple other things that people tell me, but that one I reflect on quite often because it does kind of make sense that if it, if your vote really did matter, 
someone probably would take it away from you. Uh, but I, I know when I vote, I, it matters to me. Uh, and that's really all I'm voting for is me. Uh, and if I vote and I happen to vote for a winner, which I rarely do, uh, in part because I know how it's going to go because I can see things in the future, but, uh, not really, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, but then if you, you know, you're going to, I'm going to, you work yourself up to vote. You're going and you sit there and you stand in line for an hour and 40 minutes to vote. Is it really worth that hour and 40 minutes standing in line? It could be hot. It could be raining. It could be snowing. Uh, even if with early voting, you still might have to stand in line for, you know, half an hour or something. Uh, we did that at the, uh, the polling place up in the Randall County Annex. We actually kept track. We would uh, give like a little card to the person at this certain level and we record how long it took him to get to the actual voting. We were pretty good. Uh, but then we're in Randall County and we can afford to have the polling place uh, set up correctly with the proper number. I think that time we had 10 machines, which is quite a bit for, for early voting. No dangling chads here. No, good. Good. We can't go down that road again. Oh, no, no, never, never. <laughs> Where do you see overall voter participation going in the future? I, again, uh, I with the aging out or the you know, death of the baby boomers, I can see voter turnout probably going down dramatically uh, as, as the future. But also I can see that in terms of how we're running our campaigns, too. We're trying to discourage voting uh, and negative campaigning, first of all, but also in some cases, you know, Okay, uh, there was discussion in a, in a number of states about people who are college students should only be registered to vote in their hometown where their parents live or where they graduated from high school. So if you're from uh, the rural area, they shouldn't you shouldn't vote in in like Raleigh and North Carolina was a big one. Uh, they were concerned because too many of the the, the college community was voting too liberal. Uh, so they should vote back where they're and if if you're if you don't vote where you you grew up, your parents won't be able to list you as a state tax deduction, uh, and that became a bit. It's a, a, a little bit of a debate, not not such a big one, but yeah. So voter participation, I think, as the society, I don't know how working from home will affect uh, voting because I know in some cases, talking with your colleagues at you know over the water cooler that encourages some voting. Sometimes you hear them talking. Uh, it's it's interesting how different workplaces will encourage voting. Some will actually discourage voting, but uh, some also try to encourage voting. You're riding on the subway to work. You might see the campaign signs and that, oh, there's an election coming up. Uh, I need to get in, in charge of that. So how working from home might affect that, uh, you would think it would make it easier to vote, but you probably are still need to be on your computer. You know, Your boss may keep track of you uh, through your, your video cam or whatever. You can only take break time and you still have to drive to the other side of town to actually get to vote. So yeah. Uh, Voter participation, I think, will go down, but I think it'll bounce back up uh, as some of the Gen Zs start getting even older. Because uh, we find as people get older, they do tend to vote more because uh, they tend to be more stable uh, in terms of locations. As I mentioned earlier, I see deepening entrenchment among voters on both sides, but I also see a growing cynicism in the process. Uh, conspiracy theories are tossed around, much like after when JFK was shot. Yep. There's lessening trust, almost an ex existential crisis, at least in the political realm. What are your thoughts on this? I I, I am concerned about the cynicism uh, in, in the process The actual, does this voting actually work? Does my vote actually count? And I that's one of the reasons why I continue working as like an election clerk, election judge, because it is interesting to take a look at how the reaction when people actually vote. Now that we, you know, we used to use just the machine where you press a 
oh, but that can be hacked. You know, my vote's been changed. You look, look, it changed it. Uh, what they didn't realize is if you bump that little wheel, it'll move it to the next candidate. I, that happens with my students in my class uh, when they try to take a multiple choice test. Uh, that type of uh, process. Now that we do the thing where we print it on a piece of paper, well, can I keep the piece of paper? Because uh, I need to show other people how I voted. And it's like, do you really need to show them? You can tell them. That's up to you. But uh, so we uh, we have the machines now that print out something that we put in another machine, uh, which adds another layer of cost, may actually add a degree of difficulty. Uh, some senior citizens don't always have a the sort of cognitive ability to put that paper in. And some senior citizens, some some 50-year-olds have a tough time. I always have a tough time putting it in. I always get a brand new machine that has dust in it. But uh, so, yeah, I, I do think the cynicism does the, you know, are they being recorded? I think if we all sat down and just relaxed for a bit, uh, that might make make a big difference. Uh, if we didn't view this as an ongoing war or, uh, you know, uh, the world's going to end if we vote this way, uh, maybe be a little bit more policy oriented. How How is the world going to end? What is going to be the problem? And so uh, if we didn't rely so much on social media, I think would be the, we turned off the Facebook and read a book. Right. My guest today has been Dr. Dave Rouse, the Teal Bivens Professor of Political Science at WT. Dave, give us your best shot. I think probably the, the, the most important thing to do right now is to double check to make sure your voter registration is current uh, because those, those, the primary in Texas comes in March uh, and you're thinking, oh, that's a long way off. The last day to register would be sometime in early February. That's a long way off. No, it's not. Uh, that month of January goes quick because uh, it's a brand new year. You're making all these resolutions. One of your resolutions should be, to, if you haven't registered to vote, to actually register to vote. And if you have and you move, to check to see where you are registered and make sure you update your, your information. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.